0: We've actually we've lived in Brisbane for over five years now. We've never been up to Toowoomba, which is, is kind of hard to believe. But um, my uh, my seven year old son Eli proclaimed on seeing the, the bouncy castle when we came in that this is the best church ever. So congratulations. <laughs> Children are so easily purchased. Us, us men, we um, you know if we see coffee and donuts at the table, we'll, we'll go home with our wives saying the same thing: best church ever. <laughs> Um, A small disclaimer, my three-year-old daughter wanted to carry my sermon notes in, and I let her, so I'll be just as surprised what you hear as you do. Um, I was on research sabbatical in England when uh, Brent wrote me asking if I would come and preach at um, his induction service, and I said, "Uh, great, what's an induction service? And he said, "Uh, well, it's, um, it's a service when the church that's called you, hired you, um, officially welcomes you, you know, as their pastor. I said, oh, so, so someone's hired you. And he said, uh, he said yes, the good people of this church had. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, what do you want me to tell these poor people? And he said, well, um, something fitting for the occasion. I said, okay. So like a eulogy. And he said, no, no, that's, that's, not, that's not quite what we do. Um, He said, uh, traditionally, the message is more forward-looking, you see, and um, it's it's something about the call upon the pastor and the call upon the people. So I did my best to put something together. The call upon the pastor and the call upon the people. I can see that you're all enchanted with your new pastor and his young family, and you should be. You probably feel he's got a lovely wife and an adorable son. And you probably feel that um, his jokes are funny and that his quirks are cute. Maybe someone does. But um, as hard as it is to believe, there will come a time when the shine is worn off a bit. And you'll begin to, I guess, leave the honeymoon phase, as we call it, right? And at that time, you'll begin to realize that your pastor and his family, as much as you love them that they are humans, they're mortals made of the dust of the earth, like the rest of us. And that though they are fearfully and wonderfully made, they are still fractured vessels, jars of clay, as Scripture calls it. And perhaps, perhaps they will come to realize the same about you. So what then? How do we live then? And I don't mean just coexist, as the bumper sticker says. How do we live as Christians together in community? Christians, that are all different, we all are many parts, but one body, one mind, one purpose. How do we do that? How do we do that with an imperfect pastor and with imperfect people? Again, what is the call upon the pastor and the call upon the people? Now, if you are readers of the news or have been to university any time recently or just know people outside of the church you'll hear one thing, tolerance. Tolerance is the key. And, um, I mean, this is everywhere in our world today. It's a buzzword, really. But it won't work. I can promise you that. Um, And if if you really want to know why, it doesn't take lessons in psychology or sociology to know why tolerance doesn't work. It just takes a little bit of thinking about who you use the word tolerate for. Just a short list here. You tolerate your mother-in-laws. You t- people got awkward there. Uh, you t- you tolerate no one in the room. Sorry, I wasn't no, present. Company excluded. Let's just be clear, okay? Everything terrible I say here is not about you. Um, you tolerate other people's children. You tolerate that one uncle at Christmas, right? And if you think about this, you realize why tolerance won't work. If you can't do this thing you're trying to do for that uncle once a year for one hour, maybe two hours, how can it possibly bear the weight of an entire community trying to live together as Christ's pieces, Christ's body in one place? So the call upon the pastor, the call upon the people, if it's not tolerance, what are we looking for? A clue actually comes from your high school science class. took me... 25 years to figure out what came from that class, but this is it, okay? A clue comes from that, and that is the second law of thermodynamics. I don't know if anyone remembers this. This is literally the only thing I remember from that class. But um, the second law of thermodynamics is simply this, that everything in the natural world, if left alone, tends towards chaos, tends toward disorder. Or as um, the uh, Oxford professor Peter Atkins says, he's an expert on these things, Um, Quote, the ultimate law of the universe is that everything gets worse. Everything gets worse. And while this might be the second law of thermodynamics, it's the first law of social dynamics. The only thing more certain than disorder in the natural world is disorder in the social world. Disorder amongst all of us. Two people in a car means trouble over the radio, over the temperature, over the route, over everything. Two people on an airplane means trouble over the armrest, the seat back, the luggage. Two people in a meeting room means trouble over seniority, who's taking minutes, what's going on in the meeting. Two people even in front of a television means trouble over the volume, the remote, the program, the seating arrangements. So while Jesus was right that He guaranteed his own presence wherever two or three are gathered. We are also guaranteed the presence of trouble. And that's the problem with tolerance. It assumes that relationships, if left alone, will get better on their own. But if any of you have lived in this world long enough with other people, you realize that that's perfectly untrue, isn't it? Just the opposite is true. And again, if you've read scripture, you will realize that scripture itself is not naive about this. And it knows very well. Uh, from the first family. Again, if you've, read the, if you've read any of Genesis, you realize the first family was not, not uh, great. To the Corinthian church. To the church in Laodicea. To on and on it goes. Through church history up until the very day. Here even in Toowoomba. And it's just as true of God's people as any people. So what do we do? Again, what is the call upon the pastor, the call upon the people? You may be surprised to learn that scripture provides a solution, a very, very simple one. And it's actually as common as dirt and just as cheap. It's actually free. But for a number of reasons, it often lies just out of view to most of us, a bit like a gem beneath the sand. So now there's one place in particular where this little gem is studded all across the landscape in scripture. And that's the Old Testament books of First and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. These chronicle an era that only lasted just a little over 100 years, right up until 930 BC. And for Israel, though, it represents a unique, though very brief stage in their life where they enjoyed unity and harmony and flourishing. And again, if you've read the Old Testament, you know this doesn't last long for Israel. So why? Why did the community enjoy these things? Their unity, their flourishing. Why did they enjoy these? And that is what Scripture seeks to show us in these books. And it points to a certain something. A certain something that happens here that doesn't happen at other times. So again, it's a certain something in the leaders, a certain something in the people. First, the leaders. One Samuel opens with an obese priest and his delinquent sons. Again, if you've, I'm, not, I'm not making fun of them. This is literally how it describes them. <laughs> um, an obese priest and his delinquent sons. Um, the priest is more concerned with comfort than leading the community, and his sons are more concerned with using their priestly position to do everything from eat a lot of good food to sleep with women when they come to the worship site. They're not great people. Um, and so what happens? What happens? Well, the community gets torn apart at the seams of course because this is their leadership and ultimately to summarize or to echo Johnny Cash God cuts them down these men in one day all die and the the leadership gets handed to the boy Samuel this is the boy that was in the passage that we read today the leadership gets handed to this boy Samuel and he leads Israel faithfully for all of his days and people come together there's unity and harmony in the community while he's alive So again, what something did Samuel have that Eli and his sons didn't? Yet Samuel's sons turn out to be bad too, so the people ask for someone else to lead them. And so they get a king. They get a man called Saul. And he's tall, dark, and handsome. Again, that's how he's described. These aren't my words. Um, So he's tall, dark, and handsome, and everything that the people want in a leader, or at least 50% of the people want in a leader. But he's a problem too. He's a problem too. He lacks all kinds of um, things that you need to be a good leader. So there's disobedience, there's division. Again, God's people are at odds with themselves, at odds with God. And in, in his place, God appoints the man David. David comes in. He leads the people to unity and flourishing and builds the kingdom. Even gets promised an eternal covenant to come through his line. Gets to be called a man after God's own heart. So again, we're invited to ask this very basic question. What something did David have that Saul didn't have? What was this something? So when David died, his son Solomon became king. And he again grew the the kingdom even bigger and better and greater than before. There's unity, there's flourishing, there's harmony. But then he dies. And his son, Rehoboam, takes over. And almost instantaneously, at his first moment of leadership... People come to him and say, we feel oppressed, we feel badly treated, you know, can you help us? And instead of listening to the elders, he said, be good to them, be kind to them, these people have been badly treated. What does he say? He says, no, I'm going to make it worse for you. And what happens? The entire kingdom splits down its old ancient rivalry lines. Ten tribes to the northern kingdom, two tribes of the south. So again, what something did Solomon have that Rehoboam didn't? What was this something? According to scripture, that something is listening. Listening. That's it. Listening is what allowed some leaders to rise and others to fall, some communities to flourish and others to fracture. It's not obvious in English, and that's, that's part of the reason that I, I wanted to do this talk for you today and this occasion is because it's not obvious in English, but it's all over the place in the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in. <clears throat> sorry somehow I'm suffering from a dry throat despite the torrential rains yesterday so, so this word in Hebrew for listening shama is the key word that actually ties all of these stories together the ones I just talked about it's all over these stories but again in English it's translated variously so it's hard to see so going back to the first pair So when young Samuel first hears God's voice, remember this from the reading, when he first hears God's voice, he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, right? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And this comes to characterize his life and actually becomes the the essential uh, quality that we see in the rest of the Old Testament books of what leaders ought to be, but rarely are, but ought to be. Neither Eli nor his sons listen or are ever called listeners of God or the people, nor does Saul listen. And he is actually defined as the opposite of that. So when Saul's kingship is taken from him by God and by the prophet Samuel, we have these immortal words. Samuel comes to him and says this, Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams, and this is the classic translations, how the NIV translates it. But again here, the word obey is literally the same word for listens. Same exact word that we just talked about. So it literally is, listening is what the Lord delights in about burnt offerings and lavish sacrifices. Listening is what he wants from his leaders. It's no surprise then that when we find the man after God's heart, we find the listener. Again, if you've read the narratives, you'll know that David, he's almost a bit annoying. He's just constantly going and asking of a priest or asking of God and just asking, asking, asking so that he can listen to what's going on. But this is, again, this is who he is. He's a listener. He's characterized as God's listener. The kingdom flourishes, the kingdom grows, and Solomon actually has the same trait. When you think of Solomon, what do you think of? You think of the classic passage at the beginning of his reign when the Lord comes to him and says, I will give you anything you want anything, and you name it, I'll give it to you. And what's he asked for? A wise heart, right? Solomon and his wisdom. Except the interesting thing is, yet again, when in that passage, when it says, he asked for a listening heart, or asked for a, a wise heart, it literally means listening heart. It's the same exact word, again and again and again. In Hebrews, Lev shome'ah, listening heart. And God is pleased with that. Again, the kingdom flourishes, under the listening king. But again, it comes to Rehoboam. And what is what is it described that he did? What, why was he wrong? Why did the kingdom fracture immediately under his rule? Again, we have the same thing. When the people come to him and they, quote, saw that the king refused to listen to them. They fractured apart. It's the same word every time. So this is the call upon the leader or as we might say, the call upon the pastor in our communities. What about the people? What's the call upon the people? It's exactly the same. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, you'll find, again, the the founding idea in in Judaism, in in Jewish thought, and that is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ye shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Now, again, though, this first word for here again, I'm sure you realize the theme, listen. Listen, O Israel. And actually, the Jews call it by the shorthand, Shema, which is the Hebrew word for it, and that literally means listen. It's the exact same word over and over and over. And of course, we're not let off the hook because Christ himself, when asked what the most important commandment is, repeats this, right? The most important commandment for the church, Listen. And we could point to all other places, but if you look at Proverbs, it again gives us a really good um, example of this. So Proverbs is the classic text on educating children, and it gives the parents, essentially it starts with ten little mini lessons or mini lectures, how to educate your children so that they'll be uh, good people who follow God and live well with others in the world. What do you think characterizes every single one of those little lessons? The word listen. Listen, children, listen. Listen. Listen to God, listen to people. On April 20th, 1999, I came home for lunch um, and I turned on the news like I usually did. But instead of the normal news, what I found was um, incredible scenes from a place in Colorado. There were essentially, it was all aerial footage from helicopters of students, hundreds, thousands of them streaming out of a school. And some of the students had blood all over them. Some of them were carrying others who had blood all over them. And the scenes were just incredible. And it came out, of course, that there had been a mass shooting. And in American culture, this this mass shooting came to be defined by one single word. It's the name of the high school, but ironically, or darkly, I should say, it's also the name of a beautiful mountain flower, Columbine, Columbine High School. My wife and I actually lived just down the road from Columbine for six years. It's one of the most amazing places we've ever lived. It's beautiful, and it's hard to believe that this kind of thing can go on there. But there, two students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, planned for months, um, maybe years, I don't know, a mass shooting. And so by the time they carried this out, they went into a lunchroom with 500 students, and that's just part part of the school, a lunchroom of 500 students, planted 99 different bombs, had... I believe two shotguns, one semi-automatic rifle, one semi-automatic pistol, and several hundred rounds of ammunition, and opened fire and, and began setting off bombs. Students fled, some died immediately. Um, wonderfully, many of those bombs didn't go off. They believe that if all the bombs would have went off, all 500 people would have been incinerated. But what, what happened after that for the coming minutes was chaos and just complete chaos and terror. Um, we actually have a friend who survived the shooting. She was shot herself and has many, many um, scars to show for it. Um, but people fled and, and people were shot. And it was just the most, if you look it up, it's the most horrific of, of scenes. I think in the end there's something like 24 people injured, 13 people dead. Again, it's, it's a, it was a terrible, terrible thing. And what ensued after it, as always happens in these cases, um, was this interrogation of what went wrong. Why did we not spot this? Why did we not know what these, these boys were going to do? Um, and th- again, there's a lot of stuff out there on this. And I'm not typically a fan of Michael Moore's work, but there's a really interesting scene in the movie Bowling for Columbine um, where he chronicles this, where everyone tries to figure out you know, what went wrong. And there's all these incredible intellectuals and pastors and all kinds of people and they're asking them what would you have done what do you think should have been done and there's all these really good answers and then they get to this man called Marilyn Manson I don't know if you remember Marilyn Manson he was a kind of a shock rocker kind of musician and he was actually one of them that was one of the men that was squarely blamed for these boys because his music was considered violent and so people blamed him and said you know these boys were violent because they're following your example and so at the end of this film They interviewed him and said, what do you think should have been done? What would you have said to these boys if you could have sat them down? And he says the most amazing thing. He sits there for a minute and he thinks and he says, I wouldn't have told them anything. He said, people were telling them things. He said, I would have listened because that's the one thing nobody did. Nobody listened to them. So what is the call upon the pastor and the call upon the people? According to scripture, the call is to listen. To listen to God and to listen to one another. And there's a great mystery in listening. It wields incredible power, but it costs nothing. Anybody can do it anytime and it's free. And yet it's also as rare as rubies. How many times have you said to your spouse or had them said to you, just just listen to what I'm saying. Just listen. How many times have we said it of other people? My prayer for this community is this. May it be a place where the pastor listens to the people and to God. And may it be a place where the people listen to God, to their pastor, and to one another. May it be a place that becomes known here in Toowoomba and more broadly as a place where people have written on their hearts the very words of 1 Samuel 3, 9. Speak, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Thank you. Thank you, AJ, for unveiling the word of God to us this morning and hopefully we'll all go away listening more. Opportunities now given for the uh, collection of uh, tithes and offerings.